Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and once again, it's been a little while. Summer's been busy. I moved, started a new job, took some time off, but I'm glad to be back to bring you this episode with Marta Zaraska. I was hooked right away when I heard the concept for Marta's newest book, Growing Young. It's about the health effects that social things have in our lives. Things like friendships, sharing meals, volunteering. I've been really interested in just how social of animals we are and what that means to us, what we mean to each other. This book dives into that. Marta is a Canadian-Polish science journalist. She's been in the Washington Post, The Atlantic, The LA Times, and Scientific American. What was interesting was hearing how her life has changed in writing this book, how the way she looks at wellness has fundamentally shifted. Here's her story. Marta, what provided the spark for this book, Growing Young? I mean, I wouldn't say that there was a spark uh, it was more of a gradual process. Uh, I've been a science journalist for many, many years and researching nutrition and health and psychology, writing for many different outlets from Scientific American to the Washington Post. And so it was quite a natural part of my daily job to be reading uh, research papers in this area. And uh, I just gradually started coming across more and more um, science showing that the way I was approaching my own and my family's health and longevity was not necessarily the best way or the only way. Mm. And uh, so I got intrigued and I started digging in more into this. And uh, after reading over 600 research papers and talking to dozens of scientists, I did discover that I was indeed not doing it the best way I could. Um, and that actually those soft drivers of longevity as optimism kindness and friendship are actually more important to health than many of our approaches to diet and exercise. Mm. So how did you think beforehand? What did you think was the right way to go about things? I mean, I was just doing the classic thinking so that nutrition and diet are the way to go. So I was obviously making sure that I was eating very healthy and my family as well. My, I have a daughter who is now eight years old uh, and I was following all the nutritional news and considering all the diets, you know, fasting or not, and or the paleo or not, and uh, eating all the organic miracle foods we were supposed to be trying, like the chia seeds or goji berries or mm -hmm. kale. And uh, when I lived um, with my family in Philadelphia at some point, and my daughter was very small, uh, we were very close to Whole Foods. So I used to spend quite a lot of time and money there. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so, so the classic approach. And um, I just completely didn't consider that um, friendship or or kindness or volunteering or conscientiousness could be actual health behaviors and not just completely detached, still very important part of my life, but completely, you know, a different, different drawer completely. Mm. So you mentioned already the, the science journalism background there. In this book, you make the case and the evidence is there that we are a social species, first and foremost, and more than that, that we've self-domesticated ourselves through time uh, to become more social. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, what the sort of the history there is like? Yeah, so it's actually a fascinating story. And another thing I completely didn't realize that 
we are a domesticated species just like bunnies or dogs or horses and uh, the signs of domestication in humans are for example our uh, white uh, eyes uh, the sclera of our eyes you know when you think about most animals they actually have their eyes are all dark you don't have this white you know big whites that that we have mm-hmm. and uh, this is one of the signs of domestication and uh, in other animals um, for example in dogs there are the white patches so basically discolorations uh, our our pink hands you know or light lighter color of hands you know no matter of your skin color your hands are not as dark as they would be if you were not domesticated species they would be completely completely the same color as uh, the rest of uh, the darkest part of your body and um, so we are domesticated and that's process was selection for certain hormones just like in other animals so there was this extremely famous experiment uh, in done in Siberia when uh, researchers there for decades were breeding foxes and they were breeding them only for their gentle characters they were from each litter they were just picking the most friendly foxes and what happened was that after dozens of generations actually the the foxes were not only very friendly but they changed in looks they actually started looking just like dogs basically and uh and it was absolutely you know you can see videos of those those creatures online Mm -hmm. they they are amazing just look like dogs so and this was this is caused by certain hormones that are selected for when we are choosing for calmer, nicer, friendlier behaviors. And this is, for example, serotonin or endorphins, so-called social hormones. And we also humans, we selected ourselves for having more of those hormones because we were kind of getting rid of the ones who didn't have a lot of them. And it may sound like a you know weird thing to say that we are selecting to be nicer by basically killing the ones who are not nice. <laughs> but scientists are distinguishing two types of aggression. I don't know how deep you want me to go into it, but there is uh, something called, uh, there is aggression that basically uh, is very spur of the moment. So this is kind of a chimpanzee type of aggression or the when somebody really annoys you and just basically bite their head off, sometimes literally for a chimp. Mm-hmm. And there is also the type of aggression where you kind of, meet with the whole tribe and decides something pre-planned and we did a lot of this pre-planned aggression to get rid of those who are spur of the moment aggressive and this caused us to have more of those friendly hormones Hmm. so uh maybe you have an answer to this maybe not when it comes to the whites of our eyes like what what's the what's the advantage of that for us and and in the domestication process I mean, so it what it causes. I mean, in a, in part, is a side effect. So just like the white patch on the top of a dog's head is uh, is just a very complicated side effect of different stem cells moving through your body in early stages of life that are connected to the process of hormones and it's very calm i will not go into that (laughs) just let's consider it a side effect gotcha and um but the white sclera of the eyes also have the benefit because we are more able to read emotions because of that because you can really see where people are looking you know they're moving their eyes when you have eyes as completely black as a horse for example you know they you it's really hard to read anything there but Mm. our eyes can give more information because of that Mm. Maybe before we get into more of this book, uh, I would love to just dip back in time for a moment to hear about uh, how you got to where you are today. If you could talk a little bit about uh, 
what was what was home like as a kid? I grew up in in a very small village in in uh, middle of Poland. So I grew up uh, in a very different country. Obviously, I was growing up in a communist um, Poland, uh, so that was a very weird experience from the perspective, you know, of my daughter, for example, who who is growing up in France, and uh, so yeah, it was a very different world. Was journalism, was being a writer always the dream? I mean, since I was about five, yeah. <laughs> What was it? Uh, what was it about it? Like, what was the was it the books initially? Was it a newspaper, radio? What uh, what kind of led you down that path? No, those books I, I always loved to read, and um, you know we didn't have television really. There were there was 15 minutes of children's programming per day, and uh, there were no computers. There was nothing, no distractions like this whatsoever. So books were the choice of entertainment. Uh, so I was reading a lot, and I think that this love of books made me want to be a writer. And I was I had it in my mind since I was about five. Were there journalists in the family, writers in the family that you could look to or, or people in the, in the neighborhood or, or town? Uh, or what kind of examples uh, were you pulling from? I mean, absolutely not. I grew up in an extremely rural area. Uh, so no, no writers, nobody, no journalists I knew at all. It's just, I have no idea actually what's, what made me want to write books, maybe something in my genes. I have no idea. But I started being, working as a journalist already in the newsroom when I was actually 16. So going after school each and every day. Um, and um, so, and I never stopped and it's been well over two decades now. So 16 years old, what uh, what newsroom are you getting into uh, at, that, at that age? I mean, first I was just writing about there was there was this little supplements uh, about uh, high school life. And this is where I was writing. But it was a proper, proper uh, daily newspaper that was written about 250,000 people. And so um, I was writing for the supplements. Then they moved me to the environmental supplements. And yeah, that's that's how it started. How did science journalism become your, you know, bread and butter, if you will? I mean, so after my early, early start, I moved on uh, to a proper national newspaper and I ended up being in uh, foreign affairs uh, in actually specializing with, in African affairs. So I studied law and I went to law school, but uh, with a very unusual path of political science. Uh, and I was then working as a as a journalist the whole time, basically as well for law school uh, yeah, in foreign affairs. So I was also traveling to lots of countries in Africa, also quite dangerous places, driving my parents crazy with that. Mm. And uh, and at some point in my life, I just uh, decided to switch to something safer. <laughs> also, you know, starting a family and everything. So um, I'm married to a scientist as well, definitely gave me some ideas for where I should go. And um, yeah, so here I am many years later. So your first book, Meat Hooked, was all about the human history of eating meat and the industry it sprouted and perhaps why we should eat less of it, really. Uh, what, what led you down that path? So that was also quite natural for me. I was already... A science journalist for many years before I started that and uh, it's about nutrition as well so that was kind of a natural question for me but I've been vegetarian myself or kind of I call it a little bit failed vegetarian because I still eat fish and I crave meat quite a lot and sometimes you know if friends come over and have a 
pepperoni pizza and there is some leftover, I will eat it. Mm -hmm. So it's not exactly vegetarian, but I was always interested in these questions. And I just wanted to find out, you know, why is is it why is it such a big deal you know, when people are talking about eating meat, for example, in their conversation, when I would say that I'm vegetarian, there would always be a very heated discussion at the table. Whereas if you say, I don't eat carrots, nobody really cares. And there is no, <laughs> you know, there is no fighting or like, you know, all these kind of ethical dilemmas and so on. So, That's true. so it's, it's a really big deal for people. And also it's very big deal because, you know, the environmental pressures and so on and so on. So I just also wanted to, I guess I'm a curious person. I just wanted to find out what's about it and um, why, basically. Why are we so obsessed with meat that no matter what we hear, we still want it. Hmm. What, uh, what was the biggest sort of surprise that came from that book and the process that it took to write it? Goodness, now I have to really think back. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> expecting that. Um, hmm. Okay, so maybe that's actually meat in a way made us human. And this is not just me saying that there are actual scientists who even write papers with this kind of titles, meat made us human. Mm -hmm. uh, that meat was the food that was uh, so, so such a good quality food back then in on the savanna when we were evolving that it provided us with so much nutrition protein and vitamins and minerals that actually allowed our brains to grow and the common misunderstanding here is that people when people hear it they think that we still must eat meat because Obviously, it made us human, so it's awesome. But the truth is that our ancestors that didn't have much choice. They had very poor diets to begin with. They were eating like tree bark and leaves back then. Mm -hmm. So meat was an enormous difference. But of course, if they had like, you know, rice and beans or peanut butter, that would have been, then we would be saying that peanut butter made us human. But um, they didn't. They had dead zebras. So this is what they went for. And it was good at the time. So it really uh, provided this spirit of high quality food which means loaded with calories and, and nutrients to to allow our brains to grow mm. that'll be my last meat hooked question i'll i'll bring it back to to growing young <laughs> that's my promise okay. to you um i wanted to talk about meat hook just for a moment because in in growing young you make a bit of a different argument when it comes to food it's less about what we eat and what's more important being who we're eating with uh how so so yeah, that's that's totally true. So I I was referring to the Mediterranean diet uh, when I was writing about it, and um, when people think about diet, especially this Mediterranean diet, they always fixate on the nutrients and the foods that are being ingested. So they think about the olive oil, they think about, I don't know, sun-dried tomatoes and basil and how many, you know, carbohydrates and and what type and so on and so on. But nobody really mentions about how people in the Mediterranean countries are eating. And, you know, I live in a Mediterranean country now. I've been here for 12 years now. And I do see that this is actually the most important part of it all. It's not about the olive oil. It's not about the cheese or, or no cheese or red wine or no red wine. It's really about how people in these countries eat and they eat with others. They eat slowly for a long time, always taking their time and basically always with other people. Mm. You've lived, I mean, in many different countries, not just France, as you do now, but you've lived in the States, you've lived in Canada and Singapore and elsewhere, uh, Germany too. In many of these countries, eating is much more of a thing to be done expediently. I'm thinking of uh, Canada and the States at times. 
how did you naturally like what what were you like uh before moving to france or or before the writing of this book how would you describe uh your kind of dinner traditions I mean, before I moved to France, I was a typical Canadian. So, you know, I, I was I would eat in my car. I would eat <laughs> walking on the sidewalk. And uh, after a short time living in France, you know, I very fast realized that it's a huge faux pas here to do that. Like I would never now eat down eating, walking down the street or sitting somewhere on the sidewalk, you know, like even the car you know it's just oh my god it's not done you just don't do that it's horrible like people look at you like you were picking your nose kind of thing <laughs> so, uh, so one time i was hungry you know after a long time living here in france and i, I actually had to eat a sandwich while walking on the street in paris and i was like i found myself actually nibbling on the sandwich like in hiding from my handbag you know so that nobody would notice what i'm doing <laughs> so it's just you don't eat that way so uh it's a big deal you know my daughter who is i said she's eight and she's very french and uh, she actually refuses to eat unless we all sit down with her at least one parent has to be sitting with her yeah, she will not eat dinner or another meal if there is nobody at the table with her so she keeps you honest then uh in uh maintaining good dinner time habits yeah i mean after so many years here we kind of already uh change to the French way, I guess. Mm -hmm. So as I'm reading this book, uh, you're writing about uh, these different uh, approaches to wellness through time, but also different uh, characters, people who have lived good lives and lived long lives. And one of the most fascinating characters you profile in this book is, uh, well, fittingly, a French woman, Jeanne Calment. Uh, could you tell me a bit about her story? Yeah, so she was the longest living, lived person ever. She lived over 122 years, which is absolutely amazing. And um, so I talked I quite a lot with the with a researcher who studied her life. He knew her the best out of all the scientists, because he followed her life for, for a very long time and did tons of interviews with her. And uh, so he told me that when he was, uh, he found her, basically, it was, uh, he was doing a study on centenarians in France. And when he saw her file, he didn't know what to do with it, because she was such an outlier. Because when he when he first heard of her, I think she was 110 years old or 112 or something like that. And he, she, she was just, you know, completely different than everybody else. She was so, uh, she lived so long. And, um, and the thing is, she also lived on her own until she was 110 years old. And the only reason she was forced to go to a nursing home, it was because she almost set her house on fire. And the reason for that was that she was trying to unfreeze pipes in her old apartment. And she built a tower out of her table and chairs and climbed on all of this and was with, um, with a, I think, newspaper on fire, was trying to kind of put the fire to this. So when the firemen, some neighbors kind of, uh, you know, uh, called the firemen and the firemen came and they saw her, this, you know, 110 year old lady standing on this kind of tower made of chairs and with fire trying to they said okay that's you know you are dangerous so so <laughs> but she was completely fine you know, she was mentally clear and so uh, and obviously very agile if she could climb all that and um so so she was quite fascinating she was always very uh full of life and uh, cheerful and um she didn't over worry about things and just enjoyed living hmm. uh one of the things that, uh, you know, it's inescapable these days, uh, as I'm reading your book, within the context of we're in this global 
coronavirus pandemic. And and one of the things that coronavirus has done for those who live with other people, you know, it's it's kept us around each other quite a lot more, spending time with each other for much longer than usual. And for others, it's done the opposite. Uh, for those of us who live alone, it's meant a lot more time alone. What lessons could we pull out of growing young to make the most of these times? I mean, so definitely there are negative, negative sides to that and positive sides to this social isolation that we're experiencing. Because, you know, even if you li- live with your family, you're still isolated from your extended family, from your friends and mm-hmm. so on and so on. So most people, most of us are exper- experiencing at least some level of social isolation. And um, I think that the negative side here is that there is so much research showing that when we are socially isolated, our bodies are just not working properly. Uh, for example, when people are socially isolated, they are more prone to viruses, which is very ironic when you think about it. Our just basically our antiviral response doesn't function in the same way. Uh, in one fascinating study, researchers uh, invited to the lab um, do- dozens of people, and they uh, basically infected them with cold viruses by putting those into their noses directly and mm-hmm. um and then those people who in surveys before done before uh were showed up to be the most lonely and socially isolated were the ones who were the most likely to actually develop symptoms of the virus so it's kind of very worrisome when you find, think about you know we are trying to prevent getting infected by isolating at the same time it makes our antiviral response that, that not function properly. It even makes you less responsive to vaccination, for example. Of course, I'm not saying we should stop socially isolating, but it's, you know, it's a catch-22 right. basically here. Right, right. And, but on the other hand, I also think that, you know, this whole experience uh, of isolation, of being away from your loved ones, it can spur people to start thinking about those things and maybe realizing that how important they are because now we can really appreciate the need that we all have. And uh, maybe if it makes us rethink our relationships and our, you know, how much of them they, we need and how important they are, maybe in the future we'll pay more attention, we'll spend more time, invest more time in our relationships. And this could in long term improve our health. Mm. That speaks to one point you make in the book, uh, and that is that loneliness used to be good for us. It it serves a function. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So basically, loneliness is a feeling that we have evolved a little bit like we evolved hunger. So hunger is something that just basically tells you that things are not going well in your body in terms of nutrition, and you have to find more food. And similar with Loneliness is a feeling just tells you that something is not right, you don't have enough people around you, and you should go out and look for people. And um, and this feeling also, you know, has side effects for our physiology. And the reason for that is that when we were still back on the savanna, and the long- loneliness happened when you got kicked out of the tribe for whatever reason. So you would find yourself alone, you know, with all the predators out there, and on one hand, you are less likely to catch viruses now because you are away from your tribes, away from all the people carrying and spreading viruses, but you are more likely to get bacterial infections because you are more likely to be attacked by predators, scratch yourself on some branches, fall injured, and so, and so on and so on. And because our bodies generally tend to save energy, um, so to, to, do, to do that, they would turn down 
the antiviral response when we are lonely, when we are away from the tribe, mm-hmm. but put more into the antibacterial response, so inflammation. And the thing is that it worked really well in Savannah, but these days when we are lonely, we are generally, you know, not more, not, not prone more to scratches and wounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our antiviral response still goes down and our inflammation goes up and chronic inflammation, as we know, is a very bad thing these days because it leads long term, it leads to diabetes and heart disease and so on. So things that our ancestors didn't really have to worry about, you know, they were really not worrying about diabetes, they were worrying, worrying about lions, not right. that. So, but for us, it's, it's really not uh, detrimental these days. Hmm. You bring up the story of Rosetto, Pennsylvania in your book, a really fascinating place. Tell me a little bit about that town, if you could, and, and why it's significant. Yeah, so Rosetto was uh, a town, I mean, it still is, uh, a town in Pennsylvania that was inhabited by immigrants from Italy, from a, also a town called Rosetto in Italy. And uh, in the 50s and 60s, this place caught attention of scientists because even though it had the same water systems, the same healthcare, the same area, surrounding areas, yet in this particular town, people were extremely healthy. They were living longer and they were having basically no cardiovascular disease whatsoever. Nobody was dying of heart attacks there. So doctors became fascinated by this place and they started studying it. And they discovered that it was not about the diet because somehow the Italians who moved there completely abandoned that good good health behaviors in terms of nutrition. And they were eating very greasy and basically drinking lots of alcohol. It was definitely not their diet. Mm -hmm. It was also not their genes because it was tested for as well. So what they discovered in the end that it was actually about their social habits. So what they did bring from Italy with them was extremely strong and close-knit community. They were constantly visiting each other. They were constantly in their neighbors' houses. They were organizing events for the whole town. They had 22 civic organizations in a town of 2,000 people. So they were really, really involved and close-knit. And um, what the scientists also predicted back in the 60s, that if the Rositans were to abandon their ways, uh, the heart disease would come back. And this is unfortunately what happened. So when new generations came around, they started following more of this kind of standard American dream of, you know, bigger house in the suburbs, bigger car, working longer hours, no time to visit neighbors. And basically the whole Rosito effect disappeared. And by now they have as much cardiovascular disease as anywhere else in the US. Hmm. It's not just about you know, building good relationships, as you make the case in the book, uh, volunteering can be a good thing for a longer life as well, and a, a longer, healthier life. How does volunteering keep us well? I mean, it's all about all this kind of caring for others' behaviors, right? So, which also friendship in a way is also about it, right? So volunteering, mm-hmm. kindness, even monetary donations work. And uh, in terms of volunteering, for example, Studies show that volunteers have lower risk of high blood glucose. They have lower risk of high inflammation levels. And even they even spend fewer nights in hospitals than the people who are less involved in charitable uh, you know, organizations. So, uh, so there are lots of really very pronounced health effects. And of course, it 
they have lower mortality rates as well, basically more or less comparable to eating six or more servings of fruits and vegetables a day. So these are really, really big effects. And uh, and monetary donations even can also be good for your health, although volunteering your time does seem to be slightly better. You traveled quite a bit for the writing of this book, whether it was you know chasing wild mice in England or uh, going to a hugging center in Poland or arranging flowers in Japan. What was the most far-fetched approach that you tried in the name of longevity? I mean, the most far-fetched I think I've done was an experiment on myself. Um, I mean, it was kind of experiment because, you know, subject of one is not really science, <laughs> but... Uh, but there are actual real experiments done in the same, showing the same results. So I was just basically um, replicating the same thing on myself with help of real scientists uh, from from London who helped me tremendously. Uh, and uh, so what we've done was that I was supposed to measure my cortisol levels three times a day um, by chewing on on cotton swabs that collected my saliva, basically, which I then sent to the lab. And on certain days, I would um, I would do experiments, uh, I would do random kindness, basically. So I would do nice things to others. And I, will, I would sit down in the morning and plan, okay, what, can, what nice things can I do today, which was extremely pleasurable as well, and lots of fun. And uh, on other days, I just lived my life as usual. And uh, then the scientists calculated um, and basically graphed my cortisol response, because it's not just about how much cortisol you have, it's about the levels, how how much you have in the morning, and how, it, how the slope looks like for the day, it's far more complicated. But they basically concluded that um, it was really visible, they were very excited about it, that, you know, you could, even on such a short term, you could see that on the days when I was doing random kindness, my cortisol response was much healthier. So I was much less stressed, even though on one of those days, objectively, I had lots of reason to be stressed, but still mm. my cortisol response was much, much better just because of most likely of the, all the kindness I was doing. Mm. So that's a reason enough to shovel, shovel a neighbor's driveway if you're in a snowy country or to, uh, to, to do those kinds of random acts of kindness. I mean, those kind of things are the best because then you combine physical exercise with kindness. It's like, you know, two in one. So it's amazing. Mm. There's a quote I want to ask you about. It's a quote hanging in your office, I've read, and it's, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. What speaks to you about that quote? Yeah, I, I love that quote. It's because it's, you know, especially when times are tough, then that it really helps. And uh, it's about purpose in life and having this thing to wake up for in the morning. And this is something I also discovered in Japan. They they are huge believers in ikigai, so the reason for living that can be translated. Uh, they consider it a health behavior to a point that actually the health minister of Japan officially called ikigai, so the purpose in life, as a health measure in in Japan. So it's pretty amazing. And research also confirms that people who do have purpose in life or that ikigai, uh, that they live longer and stay healthier. And in general, some people ask me, okay, so it's, for example, playing golf can it be, you know, your mm -hmm. purpose in life, but generally it doesn't work that way. It has to be something more about involvement and giving back to the society. So it doesn't have to be anything grand. It can be just taking care of your grandchildren or, you know, or can be volunteering for local events or, or your, even your job, you know, but uh, just there has to be this, uh, this uh, giving part to it. Mm. 
thinking about this book and the different steps it took to write it, the, to research it, how has it changed your life, uh, the things that you've learned since? I mean, in general, it just changed my perspective and to think about those behaviors just exactly like kindness or meeting neighbors or helping them or spending time with my husband. Uh, you know, that they are actually health behaviors. And it's, for example, if I give up, give up on my run uh, to spend more time sitting on the couch with my husband, I'm not being lazy and abandoning my health. It's actually the opposite. It's probably the sitting on the couch is, with the husband is probably more important than my health than the run. So, uh, so, so this really changed my perspective. For example, uh, I gave up on running a half marathon because I decided that the preparation for it would take too much time away from my family and it was not worth it. And for my health, it was actually probably worse. So, uh, so small changes like that. Hmm. What about if you're, if you're going to put on, you know, the doctor's white jacket for a second, if you were to prescribe to someone, uh, the first thing you would prescribe to someone looking to improve uh, the quality of their life and uh, their chance at a, at a better quality of life. I mean, investing your time in your romantic relationship, if you have one, uh, that's the most important thing that you can do for your health and longevity. So, for example, if we're talking numbers, uh, research shows that having a happy romantic relationship, committed one, lowers your mortality risk by about 49%, whereas for diet and exercise, it's about 20 to 30%. So the mar marriage or committed romantic relationship is far more important. Uh, so if you have one, then, you know, just try to put more effort and, uh, and uh, invest in it more time, just like you would in your exercise routine or in your, uh, in your diet, you know, how much time do we spend thinking about different diets, you know, gluten-free, you know, paleo, keto, uh, about supplements, researching them on internet and things like that. And how much of the time could go into our relationships, mm. both romantic ones and our friendships, right? And, and this is actually where you should be investing this time because things like supplements really are not the way to go for your health and longevity. So you're not shopping for goji berries anymore? I mean, I do like their taste, and if I stumble <laughs> upon them, I will eat them, but I will definitely not drive uh, you know, to a store just to get them, no. <laughs> Marta, thank you so much for your time. Uh, real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want to know more, Marta's book, Growing Young, is out now through Penguin Random House. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and review, and best of all, tell someone else about it. I would love for you to do that. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle, off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. Mm -hmm.